I am not Phil Sanders, neither do I play him on television, but I am staying in the Holiday Inn Express while I'm here. So. I am humbled and also thankful for the opportunity to be able to come here and to preach. Uh, I know that uh, desperate times call for desperate measures, and uh, but I'm glad that uh, you looked my direction for for many different reasons. You know, one being that uh, I have fond memories of being here a couple of years ago for your gospel <coughs> meeting when I was asked to conduct it. And uh, now, the extra perk in that uh, my family, Autumn is my daughter, Matt is my son-in-law, so let's not get that mixed up here. <laughs> but all those little ones are my grandchildren, and, and my, my wife Robin is here with me. She was uh, not able to come the first night or so last year. Tonight, this year she can come tonight, but she won't be here the rest of the week, a uh, couple of days. Uh, had other obligations back home uh, at Branson. Brother Blaine Orr and Jody Orr, his wife from Branson, he's one of the elders there. He and I are co-elders at the Branson congregation. He has driven up, and he's been asked to conduct your fall gospel meeting. So you might want to meet Brother Blaine uh, if you, and uh, decide whether you want to come back in the fall after you talk to him. <laughs> Brother Blaine does a wonderful job of teaching and preaching, and uh, you're in for a treat uh, when he comes. While I, as I stated, uh, I'm humbled to be asked to come and, and preach in, in place of Brother, Brother Sanders, one thing that I do know that we have in common is that we both use the Bible, and I will be preaching God's Word to you. And if you love, love God's Word, then I, I believe that you'll be satisfied uh, when we're finished here. I would be preaching lessons that I hope will be, uh, as a theme, I would call it a theme the, of encouragement uh, for the church uh, to help us, for, help us as, as a church to be encouraged and to be evangelistic uh, and to be strengthened. If you have your Bible, and I trust that you do, if you turn to Luke chapter 15, now we're going to be looking at the entire chapter of Luke 15, many times when we hear sermons from this particular chapter, uh, we don't usually use the whole chapter in the sermon, but the problem is that this particular chapter, in, as far as making application, you can't make complete application of what is being taught here unless you look at the entire chapter. When you hear the word sinner... First thing that comes to your mind a lot of times is, well, that's somebody that's really bad. That's somebody that's trying to live in a way that, that's displeasing to God. That's someone who has chosen to rebel. That certainly is a person who fits that description. But what we're going to see here is a sinner can be somebody who is living in rebellion to God but may not even realize it, and yet they fit the description a sinner. There are those who consider themselves very religious, and yet we're going to find that according to what we learned in this particular chapter, that being religious, being active, being regular in our worship assembly and even work of the Lord, we could still be considered by the Lord living in rebellion to him, and we fit the, category, the definition of sinner. <clears throat> so beginning here in verse 1. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, as we talk about this word sinner once again, what do you consider yourself? You see, there's only two categories of people. We're either saints or we're sinners. And I really shudder and I cannot sing songs that say that 
that tell, say things like, well, we're nothing but a sinner in your eyes, God. Well, if we're nothing but a sinner, we've got to understand that Jesus in Matthew 9 verse 13 said, He came not to call the righteous, but to call the sinners. In John chapter 9 and verse 31, God does not hear the prayer of a sinner. So if we look and we say, well, I'm nothing but a sinner, well, then God doesn't hear your prayers. Jesus came to call the sinners to repentance. And so we as Christians, we may, we may be those who are, not, who are not living a perfect life. Nobody will. We are those who will be involved. We will sin. But there's a difference between being someone who stumbles and falls and sins and someone who is a sinner. The sinner is someone who has decided that they're going to live in rebellion to God or they are living in rebellion to God whether they know it or not. They're in rebellion. Jesus came to to save the lost, the sinner. So, brethren, here we have sinners, people who are lost, who Jesus is coming to try to seek and save, who have been drawn to him, and he's been criticized... And say, look at who he associates with. He eats with sinners. Well, notice what we read next in verse 3. So he spoke this parable to them saying, now pay attention to that. Everything that we're going to read from this next verse, verse 4, all the way to the end of the chapter, is in response to the fact that Jesus knows that they're saying this among themselves and thinking this in their heart. Well, What kind of a person is he? Look, he eats with sinners. And so because the fact that they're thinking this and saying this to one another, so Jesus speaks the following to them. Verse 4. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. He eats with sinners. I know your heart. Let me tell you a story about a shepherd who had a hundred sheep. What? What's that got to do with the fact that you're eating with sinners? Well, pay attention here. There was a shepherd had a hundred sheep, and one sheep wandered off. Now, I got to ask you this question here: Did the sheep just wake up one morning and say, "You know what? I just don't like my shepherd. I think today I'm going to run away." You think he woke up one day and said, "You know, I don't like hanging around these other sheep." They stink. They smell like sheep. I think I'm going to go off and be by myself. I mean, have you ever been around a sheep? They do stink. I've been around several of them. Why did this sheep end up becoming lost, separated? Sheep are a a community-type animal. Sheep want to be around other sheep. I remember one on one occasion, well, on about four different occasions now, I have gotten a lamb for an illustration in the Vacation Bible School, four different congregations, to show how you can take a wild animal and you can become a shepherd. And in preparing this one lamb, getting it ready, I was keeping it in my backyard and it in a pen, and it was just constantly, you know, just just you know, it was hollering so much a coyote come running up in the yard, you know. And I thought, well, I can't have this, so I put it on my back porch that was screened in, where I had some great big windows, and it could see its reflection in the window. And it went over to the window and laid down right up against it, like he had a friend there, and it didn't holler anymore. Sheep want to be around sheep. And so the fact that this sheep is lost, that it wandered away, wasn't because it said, I don't want to be around the shepherd, I don't want to be around the sheep. So why did it get lost? It was just doing what sheep do. And what do sheep do? Well, there's some grass. I think I'll eat it. That looks pretty good. 
And he keeps his head down and he's just going along. That looks pretty good. And up the hill eating it. Oh, that one looks good. And down the valley eating here and there. Just all this. And then he gets his belly full and he looks up and he goes, Where'd everybody go? The sheep does not want to be lost. The sheep wants to be with a shepherd. The sheep wants to be with the other sheep. But it got distracted doing what? Taking care of sheep business. You see, it was more important that that sheep pay attention to its shepherd and where the flock was for its own good, for its own protection. But because of the fact that the sheep got distracted in what it found more interesting at that moment, he got separated from his shepherd. Now, let me ask you this. How does that apply to us? Sometimes brethren wander away. It's not that they wake up one day and say, you know what, starting today, I'm not going to pray anymore. No, just got busy with people business. In the times that we would normally set aside to pray, we end up not praying because we're busy with people business. Not things that are in and of themselves wrong and sinful, but things that are less important, but they became a priority over what should be most important. And next thing you know, they're not praying. And the next thing you know, they, they don't wake up one day and say, I'm not going to go back to the church assembly anymore. I'm done. No, usually what happens is they get busy with people business and they're working. They allow work to become more important or some activity or vacation or family that come to town and they're doing this and that. And they're, they're not doing things that are in and of themselves sinful, but less important than what they should have as a priority. And the next thing you know, they've missed for so long that they look up and they say, how did I get here? In Luke chapter 10, verses 41 and 42, Jesus is there in the home of Mary and Martha. And you remember how Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to what he has to say. And Martha, she's in the kitchen. She's busy trying to, she's trying to be a good hostess. And she's trying to take care of the Lord. I mean, what could be more important than fixing food for the Lord? He's hungry. He's going to need to be fed. And he's in your home. What could be more important that I could be doing than making sure that he is going to be taken care of? And so Martha, he's taking, she's taking care of that. And here's Mary just sitting at his feet. And I can just see Martha coming in there every once in a while and trying to get Mary's attention. <clears throat> you get in this kitchen. You know, Mary just sitting there looking at the Lord. Until finally, Martha's had enough. And she comes out to the Lord and she actually scolds him, basically chastises him. Lord, you know where Mary's place is. This is what she's saying. I'm paraphrasing it, but this is the meaning behind it. You know Mary's place. She should be in here in the kitchen helping me prepare this food. Why are you letting her stay in here like this? And the Lord looks at Martha. And says, Martha, Martha, you're worried and you're troubled over many things. <laughs> what kind of things? Physical. People business. Things that in and of themselves are not wrong. But things that if they become, uh, become more important than what should be prioritized. You are troubled over many physical things. But one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part that will never be taken away from her. You see, you're going to prepare a meal, and people are going to eat it, and that's just going to temporarily stay with them. It will just temporarily sustain them. But Mary, she's being fed a meal right now that is going to sustain her for eternity. You're distracted with many things, but they're less important. Is it possible, brethren, that we're living the life of Martha? Paul in Galatians chapter 5, verses 7 through 9, in talking to those brethren, he says to them, You ran well. You were doing so good. 
You were following your shepherd just like you ought to be following him. You were running so well. You ran well. But who hindered you? What distracted you? What caused you to quit running as fast and in the right direction? This persuasion, this distraction did not come from him who calls you. It's not your shepherd that distracted you. So what distracted Things of less importance. How did that sheep get home? Well, you remember. The shepherd, he made sure that the 99 were all safe. And then he went looking for that one. And when he finally found it, he walked over towards it with his staff in his hand. And he's got closer He says, you good-for-nothing varmints, you you better get home, you bad sheep, bad sheep. Get on back home, you so tired of coming looking for you. And now what you read? No, what'd he do? He picked up that old smell of sheep and put it around his neck, right up next to his face. Sheep stink! And he put it right up next to his face. Why? Because that was the safest place for it to be, for him to make sure it was going to get home. And his inconvenience of having to smell a sheep was less important than making sure that sheep got home. Now what's the application, brother? Application? Sometimes brethren wander away. They get distracted. Now, brethren, when they wander away, when they get distracted, we're talking about brothers and sisters in Christ, they have now gone from being a saint to a sinner. Because, you see, it's not that they just stumbled. They've gone into sin. They've been distracted by things of less importance to where now those are what their life is all about, those physical things. They're still good people. And they're just confused. And they're like that sheep. The sheep wants to be with the shepherd. The sheep wants to be with the flock. But what does it take? It it takes somebody coming looking for them to show them how to get back home. In James chapter 5 verse 19. James wrote, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. Notice the language there. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now, how is it they turn them back? Well, if you look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, here Paul wrote, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in a trespass, overtaken, not someone who stumbled and fell, someone who has been overtaken, They are now gone from saint to sinner. Ye who are spiritual. Now who are the spiritual in the church? (laughs) Oh, that must be the elders. Well, they better be. Well, that's uh, the preacher. Well, he better be. Well, the the deacons, they should be spiritual. Yeah, they better be. Well, the, the, the class teachers, you know, for them to teach class, they should be spiritual. Yeah, they better be. And guess what? You better be. You're not going to heaven unless you're spiritual. Nobody's going to be in heaven that's not spiritual. So when it says, ye who are spiritual, restore such a one, who does that apply to? Who is it that should go looking for that brother or sister that has wandered away? The spiritual. Every one of us should be involved in that process. And when we find them, what are we supposed to do? Go knock on that door. When they open it up, we get them in there and we say, Well, brother, you know, you're, you're living in a way that's contrary to the way that God would have us to live. And you know, the Bible says that, that you can't go to heaven living that way. And so, brother, you just better repent because you are a bad Christian. You need to come on back. You can go to hell if you don't repent. Can't you see that sheep just want to run and jump in your arms? Brethren... If anyone among you, if they, if a man is overtaken in a trespass, ye who are spiritual, restore such a one. But notice how, in the spirit of gentleness. 
just like that shepherd. Picked up that sheep, put it around his neck, carried it home. Sometimes a brother or sister, they have been overtaken in a trespass. They don't want to be away from their shepherd. They don't want to be away from their church family. They just need some help getting back home. And all it takes is somebody going to them with a spirit of gentleness and saying, I love you. Let me help you come back home. And they're more than willing to come. And it could be that the way it needs to start out, brethren, is the way that I have had to, and Brother Blaine here, we together as elders, there have been times that we've been distracted with things that were less important than what our responsibility, first responsibility is towards the sheep of the congregation. And we've gone to people's homes and we've had to sit down and ask them before we even said anything else, we've come to ask for you to, to forgive us. Because we've known that there was a problem, a spiritual problem, and we have failed to come and see you as quickly as we should have. We were wrong. Will you please forgive us? Well, you know what the brethren, when, you know how brethren respond when you start out? I mean, they see you coming, they go, oh boy. There's the preacher, the preacher elder. Oh, there's both elders. They're both coming to my house. Yep, here comes the spanking. And then you start out by saying, would you forgive us? And they go from having this wall that says, okay, let's get this over with. The, what? I thought I was in trouble. You're saying you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah, we are. We should have already been here. And they say, well, sure, I forgive you. Well, would you pray with us? And then we pray together. And then we've said, we're here because we love you. We're here because we want you to go to heaven. We want to help you to go to heaven. We want you to help us to go to heaven. You're part of our family. Please come home. Now, unless they're embracing sin that they just do not want to give up, brethren, that spirit of gentleness is so powerful. But it has to be, it has to be first of all, that spirit of gentleness has to be motivated by love for God, for the truth, and for those folks that we're talking to. And let me say this. There are some who sometimes say, well, you know, we can't do something about a brother or sister, you know, because we haven't done anything about anybody else. And so, I mean, how's that going to look when they throw that in our face? Well, why are you coming to me? They're so... Brethren, you got to start somewhere. And when you stand before God and say, well, you know, we just didn't know where to start. He's going to go. Uh, you, had, you, you knew who the sheep were. You know who your brother is. Your sisters are that need help coming home. He eats with sinners. Who are these sinners? Sometimes they're brethren that have just gotten distracted by people business. And they've allowed that to become a priority in their life instead of the Lord. And they're now, they've gone from saint to sinner and they need some help to come home. But the Lord didn't stop there. He continued. Verse 8. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. He eats with sinners. Oh, well, let me tell you about a woman who lost a piece of money. She had ten, she lost one coin. What? What's that got to do with the fact that, that you eat with sinners? Well, let me explain. 
First of all, when he talks about that woman that lost one of her coins, it's very likely that they understood exactly the significance of what he was talking about because in the culture of that day, the young ladies who were unmarried would had coins that were made into a headband that hung from the headband. And when they got married, the man that married them not only got the woman, but he got the money. And so every once in a while, there'd be guys who'd go around trying to sneak a peek, see how much she's worth. And so the fact that she had ten coins and she lost one of them, she's lost one-tenth of her dowry. dowry, And that's a big deal to her. Now, the coin was lost. Did the coin know it was lost? No, you see, I, I've got a piece of money here. How much is this is a quarter? What's it worth? Well, it's supposed to be worth 25 cents. I don't know what it's worth really anymore. But you see, if if I am mishandling my money, it's it's my money. It's in my hand. But if I'm not careful with it, if out of some some mistake that I make or mishandling, I'm putting it in my pocket and I just fell on the floor, and I don't know it's there. What's that quarter worth to me? Nothing. You see, because the money is worthless as far as its value to me, unless the money is in the hands of the owner, it's worthless. Now, it still has the value of 25 cents. But without being in the hands of someone who can use it, there's no value. There are people in this world who are not in the hands of our Lord. Through no fault of his own. Because you see, the responsibility for them to be there is ours. It's our responsibility to go to the whole world and preach the gospel. It's our responsibility to sweep the house, to light that gospel lamp, and to look to try to seek and to save the lost, which was the goal of our Lord, Luke 19.10. He came, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. And so that's our responsibility now. There are people who are lost who don't know they're lost. The quarter quarter doesn't know it's lost. It's still worth a quarter, but the quarter does not know it's lost. There are are people who are in this world, brethren, who they have the value of a soul that we all have. Everybody's soul is equal in worth. And yet, if we're not in the hands of our owner, God, then that soul is worthless to him. We've got friends who aren't Christians. They're lost. Their soul is worth just as much as your soul, but their soul is valueless to the Lord because there's no good being done for the Lord from that person. And they don't know they're lost. There are folks that you work with who are lost. And they don't know they're lost. We've got neighbors who are lost and they don't know they're lost. We've got family members who are lost who don't realize they're lost. In the only way they'll ever know that life needs to be different, brethren, if we get busy trying to seek and to save the lost. We have to sweep this world, spread the gospel. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul said that the Lord's going to come back in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord. Those who do not know God and those who do not obey 
Some people know what God would have them to do, and they just choose not to do it. The Lord's vengeance will be brought against them. Some people are going to have the Lord's vengeance brought about against them because they think they know the Lord, but they don't know the Lord. There are good, sincere, moral people in this world who are sincerely lost. If you don't think that's true, look at Acts chapter 8 where we have the example of the Ethiopian eunuch who has gone to Jerusalem from Ethiopia just for the purpose of worshiping God. He's there just to worship God and he's on his way back home several hundred miles in a chariot and he's reading his Bible. He's reading from the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah and God has Philip the preacher, to leave the busy city where there are probably thousands of people who are lost. And he has him go out into the middle of nowhere in a desert area to preach to one sincere religious man. Why? If that Ethiopian eunuch had died before Philip got to him, would he have gone to heaven? He's a good religious man. He prays to God. He worships God. He reads his Bible. If he's going to, be, if he's going to heaven before Philip gets there to him, why is God sending him to him? He's sincere, but he's sincerely wrong. He is lost. He doesn't know he's lost. It took somebody to bring the gospel to him. To sweep the house. He eats with sinners. Well, who are these sinners? They're people who are separated from God because of sin and they don't even know it. But the Lord doesn't stop there. He continues. Verse 11. Then he said a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate. And no one gave him Anything. Now you ought to underline that in your Bible, at least mentally. Because a lot of times when we read this, we just, we just gloss right over that. It just goes right along. And no one gave him anything. We'll comment on that in just a moment. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father... I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatty calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. He eats with sinners. Oh, well, let me tell you about the man that had two sons and one of them left home. What? Well, yeah, yeah, you're, you're complaining about the fact that I ate with sinners. You know, this illustrates something that you need to learn. There was a man who had two sons. The younger son said, Father, I would like to have my inheritance. And here's what we've got to understand is the father in this particular parable represents God. So... In thinking about that, he's got two sons, and one of them is going to go off and live in sin. Did God do something wrong in raising him? You see, free will 
comes into play, no matter, even sometimes in the best of circumstances, a young man or young woman may choose to rebel against God. Parents, you don't always, you aren't always to blame. If you've done what God would have you to do to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, if you've trained them up in the way that they should go, then when they get old, then, then they should depart from it. That's the rule, but obviously there are exceptions. Uh, think about King Solomon, raised by a father who was a man after God's own heart, and yet when he got older, uh, he strayed. This young man, he takes his blessings that he gained from being in the father's home and he goes into the far country which represents leaving home to go into the world to be involved in sin and he is living it up the way he's got lots of friends because he's got lots of money and when the obviously when the money ran out the friends ran out too but a drought came a famine came upon the land and he's out of money and the only way he can find any work to eat is to, well, basically it says that he um, he joined himself to a citizen of that country, which basically in the original language means that he didn't just go apply and ask for a job. He just forced himself on this man and said, I'll do anything. I'm not leaving. Please help me. I'm not going anywhere. I, he, he forced himself upon this man, and the man said, all right, you can feed my pigs, which is about the lowest that a Jew could go because, you see, that's an unclean animal. They don't have anything to do with pigs. And he's feeding the pigs, and the food that he's giving the pigs, he's looking at it going, I wonder what that tastes like. I wonder if I can... You know, I've never been that hungry. I've been so thirsty that I've looked at mud puddles. When I was in South America one time, I got so dehydrated that and I didn't have any clean water, and I'm looking at a mud puddle going, mm, I don't know. Now, I wasn't so thirsty that I ended up drinking it. Not been that thirsty. But this young man, he's so hungry that it, it basically saying that he's willing to taste it. He's willing to try to live on it. Does his father know where he is? You bet he does. You see, because you see, the father represents God. Is there ever a time when God doesn't know where any of his children are? Of course not. He knows what we're doing, how we're living, the choices that we're making. And so the father knows that the son has gone into the far country and that he's living in rebellion. He knows that. Now going back to where I pointed out though, verse 16. He would, have glad, he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate and no one gave him anything. The father knows where he is, and no one gave him anything. This young man is desperate. I mean, he could die under these circumstances because he is starving to death. His father knows that he's starving to death, that he's living out in the streets, and no one gave him anything. Now let's bring it to today's time. And we've got a child that's living in rebellion and we know they're really down and out because of the choices that they've made. They've chosen to go out into the streets. They've chosen to put themselves in a situation and now they're suffering the consequences of their decisions and, boy, I hate to see them suffer. Let's send them a few dollars to at least get them in a motel. I hate to, I hate to think that he's got to live out on the streets. Let's give him a little money so that he can at least get something in his stomach good to eat. You know, let's at least make sure he's got a good hot meal. You know, I mean. Are you making the connection? 
You say, boy, that, that, that's, that's, no, that, I don't like the way that sounds. Oh, you think God was being mean? The Father was being mean to the Son? You see, the Son could come home anytime he wanted to. The Father didn't say, get out and stay out. The Father has said, and the Son knows that this is your home and you're welcome here any, any time that you want to live according to the house rules. You're welcome here. We want you here. And if you'll come and live based upon my rules, you're right back in your place, your position. What happens, brethren, when we throw a few bucks towards somebody that has brought consequences on themselves. We help them to be comfortable in their sin. That's what we do. Does God not love this son? Does the father not love this son? Of course he does. But he wants the son to do what's right. And no one Gave him anything. Let's bring it on home to a congregation setting. Well, you know, we've got this young couple and they've been unfaithful. And, and, and it's been almost a year since we've seen them at, here at the building. And, and nobody really knows what's going on. And nobody's going to check on them. We just know that they've been unfaithful. And I just found out that she's expecting I know, let's have the church throw a shower for them and maybe we can nice them back. We can show them that we love them so much that they'll want to come back because we're showing them so much attention and no one gave them anything. Now you see, there's other things that should be involved. You see, you think about it. Now... When the sheep went, went straying off, the shepherd went looking for the sheep. But when the son went away, the father stayed home. Isn't a son more important, more valuable than a sheep? The difference is the sheep wanted to come home but needed some help. The sheep wandered off. The son ran off. He didn't want to come home. What happens when you take a boy or a young lady off the street who ran away and they don't want to be home and you force them to come home, you force them to be warm, you force them to be fed, you force them to be cleaned up, you force them to be there. What's going to happen? First opportunity they get, they're leaving again. And when the young man came to himself, when did he come to himself? When he was down and out when he was, you know, sometimes the only, the only time people will look up is when they're flat on their back. And he's finally there. He's flat on his back, spiritually speaking, physically speaking. You know, back home, even the servants have plenty of food to eat. I have messed up. I have, he came to himself. And he says, I'm going to go home and tell my father that I'm wrong. He didn't just show up one day and go, yeah, I'm back. You glad to see me? And everybody just go, he's back. They don't know why he's back. They just know he's back. And so we're glad he's back. They walk into the auditorium. They've been unfaithful for all these months. And so they're back. Would you like to lead the closing prayer for us, brother? Because if we get them busy doing something, then that we might just keep them home this time. Are you making the connection here? He came to himself. He went home and he said, I've sinned. I've sinned. I don't deserve to be called a son. Make me a slave. Now the father, this is the plan. The father 
who doesn't go looking for the sun. He knows where he is, and he knows which direction to be looking every day. You can just see him on his front porch just looking towards that hilltop, hoping that that sun come home. And one day he sees the outline of a straggly, scrawny-looking young fella coming down the road that actually looks years older than his age, and he immediately knows, that's my boy. And we have a picture of God running to meet the one that's coming home. The son says, Father, I have sinned. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one as you Put a ring on his finger. Put a robe on his back. Sandals on his feet. Kill the fatty calf. My son who was dead is alive. He's lost, but now he's found. Oh, he's home. It's time to rejoice. Brethren, we've got... Remember, he eats with sinners. Well, who are the sinners? <clears throat> Yeah, there are definitely people who've just chosen to live in rebellion. Well, what do we do about those who choose to live in rebellion who know better? Obviously, they started out at home. They're in the church family, but they've left. How do we know the difference between a sheep and an old billy goat that just wants to butt heads with us? We don't know as human beings until we go see them. And then God tells us how to handle the brother or sister that does not want to come home. And Lord willing, we'll talk about that Sunday evening. He eats with sinners. Well, sometimes there are people who are going to live in rebellion, and the only thing that we can do for them is allow them to suffer their consequences. So they'll come to themselves. Not because we don't love them to the contrary, because we love them. We're willing to allow them to suffer those consequences so that their attention might be gotten. But notice here as we complete this, a lot of times this is where we stop. But that's not even the end of this particular story, this parable. So we again pick up at verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and because he's received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. Now here's somebody that lives in the house. This is flesh and blood. This is kin. This is a brother. Your younger brother, he's come home. And so your father's throwing a party. Well, we should all be happy. And so the older brother, verse 28, but he was angry. And he would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. You know, I can just see it. He finds out, hey, what's the commotion in there? Your younger brother's come home, and so your father's throwing a party. And so I can just see him going out under a tree somewhere, got his arms crossed, his lips sticking out. Now why? Why is he pouting? Well, let's see here. Verse 29. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I've been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours, he wouldn't even call him his brother. As soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, I mean, you think about what he's been doing. You're throwing a party for what kind of guy? A guy that goes and he's living with the prostitutes and living that kind of life? That's who you're throwing this party for. You killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me. And all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad. For your brother was dead and is alive again. Was lost and is found. Now why is he telling the story? Because he eats with sinners. Now, what's this part of the story have to do with anything? We know the younger son, what that has to do. But now you've got an older brother who never went into the far country. 
who did not live a life of rebellion. He says, I don't transgress your commandments. I stay home. I work hard. And, and I don't get treated special. You, know, you won't even give me a, a, a goat to kill and, and have a party with my friends. But now this guy who's been living the way he's got been living, you kill the most valuable animal that we have as far as it being special under certain circumstances. You kill it for him? I don't get that. I don't understand that. What's the application? Well, remember, we're talking about in this situation, those who are in God's family, some who run away from God and won't come back until they come to themselves, and some who never leave where God is, and yet there's a problem here in their relationship with God. What is the problem? Well, this this older son is if he's not lost, if he's not just as lost as the as the younger son, he's very soon gonna be. Why is that? Well, first John chapter four and verse twenty one. He who loves God, now think about it, does this older son love his father? Well, yes, I love you, father, but you know, my younger brother, you know, your son. uh, No, he who loves God must, must, is the word John used, must love his brother also. If we don't love one another, then when we say we love God, we're just lying. 1 John 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Is it possible that we could have that kind of atmosphere, relationship, or problem in, in our church family? Is it possible that there are certain brethren that we just, you know, we're not getting along with right now? And, uh, uh you know, we we pick up our songbooks and we sing, Oh, how I love Jesus. And then just as soon as the closing prayer is said, we look out the corner of our eye to make sure that we go out in the aisle at the same time and bump into Sister So-and-so. I'm not getting along with her right now. But oh, how I love Jesus. No, you don't. We don't love Jesus if we don't love one another. That's what God said if you got a problem, brethren, with a brother or sister right now, and you claim to love the Father, uh, God says, no, you don't. If you're not trying to do what you need to do so that your relationship is right with your brother or sister because you love them, then you don't love God. And here this brother, he's looking down his nose at the younger brother. I can't believe they're throwing a party for him. Is it possible that somebody could respond to the Lord's invitation and there would be somebody that would be thinking in their heart, well, there they go again, down the aisle. Well, you know it's not going to be a month before they go down the aisle again. Well, look at everybody down there hugging his neck like it's something special that he's responded. I, I ain't got enough fingers to count how many times I've seen him repent. You know, I'm not going to go down there and hug his neck. He's going to have to prove it to me that he really means it. But oh, how I love Jesus. <laughs> Hard as I work around here, I never miss anything. I'm involved in all the work days. I teach class. I'm active in leading in the worship service. And nobody even says, hey, good job, brother. And look at what they're down there hugging his neck. But oh, how I love Jesus. Eats with sinners. Now what's he talking about? He's talking to those Pharisees. You see, oh, how we love the Father. We love the Father. We're the holy ones. We're the ones that are involved in the Lord's work. We're the ones that people should look at as the example. We're the hard workers. We never do anything wrong. And we look down our nose at you. And Jesus says, "Mm mm-hmm. Are you understanding the story? 
He eats with sinners. Why? Because Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. All should come to repentance. The lost sheep didn't want to be lost, but needed some help to come home. The lost coin didn't know it was lost and needed some help to be put in the hands of his rightful owner. The prodigal was lost, knew he was lost, wanted to be lost until he came to himself, and then he had to come home. He knew what he needed to do. The older brother, he never left home, and yet he was on his way out of the house as far as his heart was concerned. What was his problem? Uh, He had a heart problem, all right. He needed a heart transplant. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song of invitation. You remember I began the lesson by talking about the fact there's two categories of people. We're either saints or we're sinners. A saint is someone who is striving to live the way God would have them to live. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. If we walk in the light, as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us. The tense, present tense means the blood of Jesus keeps on cleansing us of sin. Well, wait a minute. How can I be walking in the light and have sin? Well, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. John goes on and says in the next verse, you say you have no sin. Well, then you're a liar. Truth's not in you. You're calling God a liar. We all sin, but the point is, There's a difference between someone who stumbles and are sorry that they've sinned and the person that says, well, everybody sins, and so they just keep on sinning. The saint will humble himself in the sight of the Lord, allowing the blood of Jesus to continue to cleanse him of his sin. By doing what? First John 1 and verse 9. If we confess our sins. Now remember, who was, John, who was he writing to when he, when he says this? He's writing to Christians, people who are saved. He says to Christians, if you who have sinned, don't say you haven't. If you who have sinned and are striving to walk in the light as he's in the light... If you will confess your sins, then God, who's faithful and just, will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Saint. But brethren, if you're here tonight and you've never been baptized into Christ, and notice I say into Christ, the denominational world has it backwards or wrong anyway. They say that you're saved by asking Jesus to come into you. Romans 8 verse 1 says, There's therefore now condemnation to those who are what? In Christ Jesus. We're not saved by Jesus coming into us. We're saved by us going into Jesus. And if you've not been baptized into Christ, then you haven't put on Christ. You look at Romans chapter 6. And how that we're buried with Christ in baptism. And we rise to walk up a brand new creature. Buried with Christ. And if you're baptized, that means you are buried. The word baptized means to dip, to plunge, to immerse, to cover up. But Paul makes it plain when he says burial. We know what it means to be buried. You're going to use enough dirt to cover them completely up. If they're buried at sea, they're covered completely up. If we're buried in baptism, we're completely covered up. For what reason? Jesus tells us in Mark 16, verse 16, He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. How is that possible? Because there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, and we are baptized in Christ. Colossians 3, verse 17. Or 27. Or in the chapter there somewhere, find it. 
have you been baptized into Christ? As a child of God, have you sinned and fallen short of his glory? The Bible doesn't teach that once we're saved, we're always saved. But the Bible teaches us once we're saved, there's no reason not to remain saved. By humbling ourselves and asking God to forgive us. And the same blood that washes our sins away in baptism will continue to cleanse us. Think about it, brethren. You're here on a Friday night, so obviously spiritual things are important. But physical things interfere with spiritual people many times. There's nothing more important than going to heaven. There's nothing that you can do that you can obtain that's more important than a home in heaven. If the Lord were to come tonight, or if your life were to end tonight, are you a saint or are you a sinner? There's nothing more important than being ready to go home to heaven. If you're here tonight, there's anything we can do to assist you, we encourage you to come now while we stand and sing this song.